when people freak out at the notion of the poetry and the rhythm and the meter, it's not a prison. It frees you completely. You have to do so much less work when you get the meter into your body, which I believe, and I know this is very corny, but I believe it with my whole soul. Iambic pentameter is the beat of the human heart, period. Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And with us today, we have the actor David McCann. Hi, David. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. David McCann has appeared in theaters across the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., including the Old Globe, the Shakespeare Theater in D.C., New World Stages, the Denver Center, the Walnut Street in Philly, the Virginia Stage Company, the Alabama, Orlando, Nebraska, and Vermont Shakespeare Festivals, and the Royal Shakespeare Company at the Barbican and on tour with the company. He has played Hamlet three times, Claudius twice, Prospero twice, Oberon, Feste, Iago, Salieri, Claudio, and Ross twice. He was in the original company of John Barton's Tantalus. He is also a food writer, a recipe developer, and a playwright. Welcome. It's very bizarre listening to all of those things recited. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who were some of the early influences that shaped your impressions of doing Shakespeare? Probably the most important is a man named John Barton, uh, one of the co-founders of the RSC. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that name. (laughs) Heard of him before, have you? (laughs) The uh, playing Shakespeare tapes are, you know, life-changing for most actors who see them. Guilty as charged. And... That was the reason that I agreed to give up two years of my life to do Tantalus, because it was his. You know when you're about to meet someone that you've worshipped your whole life, and the assumption is they're not going to live up to it, and he more than lives up to it. It's like spending an evening with Shakespeare. The man's knowledge is encyclopedic, and he's, he's a great teacher in that he doesn't believe there's any point in knowledge until he gives it away. And he's profligate with it. He just Mm. gives you everything he has. He really was the main influence because of the way he got the folks at the RSC to speak the words. He didn't ignore the verse by any stretch, but it wasn't that very old-fashioned, ba-dum-ba-dum-ba-dum-ba-dum-ba-dum, sing-songy thing that I'll get in trouble for this, but that a lot of the Brits still do. It's been a while since I've watched them, but what I took from him is that how do you take the words, the text, and put it into playable moments, acting moments? And he he starts with the words, and he examines the text, and then he looks to choices, and they make choices based on the text. But the other thing that I think is fascinating about the way he works is he makes the assumption that an actor has a brain. And I know with some of the actors we all know that may not be the case, but (laughs) it's nice to make the assumption that we have a brain. So if he's doing work on the text and then wants to switch to work on a moment, it's okay to not deal with the meter and the rhythm because this is just a part of the process. You do this, you do this, you do this, and you do this, and eventually you put it all together. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't believe there are clues in the text because obviously he does. Another teacher that I have to mention, Neil Freeman, was my voice teacher in university in Toronto. And Neil has gone on to be the sort of guru of the first folio. A lot of the um, little Shakespeare paperbacks that everybody picks up when they go off to do the Tempest in Arizona are now Neil's editions. 
you may not know the name, but you will see the name now that you're right. familiar with right. it. Right, of course. And his belief was, go to the folio for everything. Is that yours? It is. I, I know that there are people who will fight it and who will say, yes, but even in the folio, the punctuation wasn't exact. But since we don't really have any other clues, let's go to sort of the ur-text and use that. So you've chosen a really fascinating speech today from Richard II, Act 4, Scene 1. The character is the Bishop of Carlisle. Yes. What is it about this play that attracts you? I think it is quite possibly the most beautiful poetry in the canon, and it's one of the most underproduced plays. Now, yes, it's a history, and Americans freak out at the notion of history, but the poetry in this is astounding, and not just for the sake of poetry. I think it is gorgeous poetry at the service of, of a very interesting, fragile, flawed character. The end of this, there's such a perfect example of the art that is Shakespeare in the line that follows this speech. In the line that follows this speech. Yeah. But it's perfect. It shows you what a master this guy was of dramaturgy. For those who aren't familiar with this speech and may not be familiar with the characters, who is this person? He's a bishop. He is one of the ones who, because he's called the Bishop of Carlisle, I assume you could figure that one out. He's, nobody's really good in this play. Everybody is flawed. Everybody's working angles. But the big thing about the bishop and about this speech is he knows that there's one thing you don't do and that is depose an anointed ruler because all hell gwine break loose if you do and that's what he says in this is look guys i i sort of know what you're doing and why you think you're doing it but we're going to pay if you do this one unholy thing this man whether he's a good king or not has been anointed by god and in terms of the Shakespeare canon, he's actually rather prescient because yes. this leads to the Wars yep. of the Roses. Yes. So Bolingbroke, who is also referred to as Hereford, yes. will become King Henry IV. Yes, after... After he disposes of the current king, Richard II. Right. And the Bishop of Carlisle is addressing the assembled members of the insurrection. Yes, yes. And we'll see what he has to say about what they're planning to do. Would you like to read the speech for us? Sure. I've never done this sitting down. This is very odd. <laughs> ah, the physicality. We have a lavalier mic. Yeah, no, I think I'll, I'll try and figure out how to do it sitting. <laughs> Mary, God forbid. Worst in this royal presence, may I speak? Yet best beseeming me to speak the truth. Would God that any in this noble presence were enough noble to be upright judge of noble Richard? Then true noblesse would learn him forbearance from so foul a wrong. What subject can give sentence on his king? And who sits here that is not Richard's subject? Thieves are not judged, but they are by to hear, although apparent guilt be seen in them. And shall the figure of God's majesty, his captain, steward, deputy-elect, anointed, crowned, planted many years, be judged by subject and inferior breath, and he himself not present? 
Oh, forfend it, God, that in a Christian climate, souls refined should show so heinous, black, obscene a deed. I speak to subjects. And a subject speaks, stirred up by God thus boldly for his king. My lord of Hereford here, whom you call king, is a foul traitor to proud Hereford's king, and if you crown him, let me prophesy the blood of English shall manure the ground, and future ages groan for this foul act. Peace shall go sleep with Turks and infidels, and in this seat of peace, tumultuous wars shall kin with kin and kind with kind confound. Disorder, horror, Fear and mutiny shall here inhabit, and this land be called the field of Golgotha and dead men's skulls. Oh, if you raise this house against this house, it will the woefulest division prove that ever fell upon this cursed earth. Prevent it. Resist it. Let it not be so, lest child, child's children, cry against you, woe. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you. Let's dig in a little bit to this text. Now, okay. what are the big turning points in this speech for you? I think this is, in many ways, a very formal speech. Because I know what I'm getting into if I'm standing in front of these people. I'm a churchman. These are all soldiers. I know I'm telling them that they're bad boys. So there's every chance I'm not going to make it out of this speech alive. You have to tread carefully? I have to tread carefully until I can't. And I think that's that to me is maybe the biggest clue about acting, period, is that you tread carefully until you can't. Mm. You tell jokes until the moment it's no longer funny. What is the point of no return in this speech? There are a couple, but the real one is my Lord of Hereford here, whom you call king, is a foul traitor to proud Hereford's king. Because then it's, I have crossed the line. We're talking about line 136 and line 137. Mm -hmm. And you're identifying this line as being thematically the point of no return in the speech. And I think it's very interesting that something happens here metrically in those lines. Yeah. Yep. Um, there's also, even before that, if I may, mm-hmm. yes. even before that, there's a big metric thing on 131. And he himself not present, oh, forfend it, God. That is a long line. It's an Alexandrian, yeah. And here's a take I have. I know that there are, there are better minds than mine. There are, there are more detailed scholars than I. You're our mind today. And that's sad for you. (laughs) That is sad for all of you. But the thing is, even if you don't have a scholar's knowledge of this stuff, if everything is regular, if everything is, and I'm going to do the the bad sound, excuse me, but um, but um, but um, but um, but um, if they all have that cadence in some way, when one is longer, I believe one of the clues it gives you is I'm so upset, I can't 
control it and keep it in but um but um but um but um but um I've got to sort of blow out of that. And that happens, you say. And in that line happens on um, and he himself not present, oh for fair and it God. There's a lot extra. You're talking about an entire extra yeah, yeah. metric foot. Yeah. I noticed, David, that when you read this, you paid particular attention to line 134. There's yes. a comma there, right in the middle, which divides that metric line into two symmetric halves. Yes, yes. I speak to subjects, comma, and a subject speaks. So we have this pentameter line, which is made up of five parts, mm-hmm. and five things cannot be divided symmetrically. And yet, when the third foot is divided symmetrically, right in the middle with mm-hmm. that comma, it creates a mirror image of itself. I speak to subjects, and a subject speaks. And you did not shy away from drawing our attention to that. I think rhetoric, the technical use of rhetoric, is something that was intrinsic, common, taught when he was writing. We are afraid of it because it becomes flowery. But in reality, it doesn't. It makes it clear. If he uses those forms, if he repeats words, if he repeats patterns, he's not an idiot. You need to look at it and use it. And in this specific one you're talking about, it is accusatory. And then I stop. I don't stop. I pause in the middle and say, but I'm a subject too. So we're all in this together. So we've got to know what we're doing. I'm accusing you of doing something bad, but I'm one of you. I am his subject as well. We can't do this. He humanizes it in such a beautiful way at that point. I, I don't know how we had gotten there, but I, this is where I want to tell you about the end. Right. You, you mentioned the next line is a brilliant Is line. Northumberland, one of, the, one of the lords. So, oh, if you raise this house against this house, it will the woefulest division prove that ever fell upon this cursed earth. Prevent it. Resist it. Let it not be so. Lest child, child's children, cry against you woe. Well, have you argued, sir, and for your pains of capital treason, we arrest you here. But um, boom. <laughs> um, that's a smart writer. There's a little bit of Monty Python in there. You know, there's a reason that the, the Brit stuff we love is the Brit stuff we love. And what makes me mad about bad Shakespeare is that it takes stuff that is so accessible. He wasn't written for scholars in libraries. He was written for people who were in the pit, drinking and fucking and eating and smoking. And you'd have to get their attention somehow because they're doing all of that while you're trying to go to be or not to be. Right. You've somehow got to get their attention. Right. But I I just think that that, the Northumberland line at the end of this is unreal. There's a bunch of alliteration in this. Yep. The k-k-k-s, yep. And then there's also the repetition, which is actually kind of related, I yes. think, in this. So when, when you see that, and as an actor, I noticed that you really didn't play up the alliteration. You didn't dig into the K-sounds. What do you do? I think you have to know that they're there, and you choose whether or not to really emphasize it. Mm-hmm. If you are an articulate speaker, 
they're there. They will be there. They will make their presence known without you beating the shit out of it. Mm -hmm. Can I say shit? Yes. You said fucking earlier. I did say fucking earlier. We're going to lose our clean designation on the iTunes store. (laughs) So you were talking about some metrical things that happen around there. Do you want to go into it? There's this marvelous deviation from the meter that happens specifically at line 137. And it's a deviation from the iambic scheme. Yes. We have a pyrrhic foot followed by a spondy, followed by a pyrrhic foot, followed by a spondy, which is so unusual. So we have two unaccented beats followed by two accents, followed by two unaccented beats, followed by two accents. Mm -hmm. And then we return to the iambic and the final beat. How would that sound if, if we read it in that way? I think Garrett's asking you to read it. I think he is. And I'm looking, I wasn't ignoring, I was looking at it before I started. <laughs> and these things, of course, all of these metrical, there certainly isn't a guidebook to, to the meter. And I, it seems to me that there's... Garrett, that's why we're here. But, 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 that's but what I think there is. That, I think there is a, I think it is a guidebook. I don't think it is a law. I think it's a guide. I think it's, oh, when you're in Florence, you may want to go to this restaurant or this one or this one or this one. It doesn't mean you have to go to those, but it's giving you the benefit of some knowledge. In that way, I think it is a, a guide as opposed to a prison. Here's some information that will help you through this. You've got to pay attention to it. You've got to know what it is, deal with it in some way, and then use it or don't use it. All of the the metrics, the 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 rhythm, the uh, repetition, the alliteration. Thank you. That's the, the antithesis. word. You have to. Let me go to a dance metaphor, if I may. I don't think you can be a modern dancer, a Martha Graham kind of modern dancer, unless you have studied ballet. You need to know what you're reacting to. Right. And I think with Shakespeare. I don't want you to get trapped in the minutia, but you've got to go through it. You've got to sift through it. You've got to know it and then find a way to incorporate what you can incorporate and let go of what you can't deal with. Because just like uh, vocal work on stage, if you are spending all of your time going ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum you're not doing the play. But if ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum ba dum is in your body, you'll do a lot of it without thinking about it. Right. Now, back, what, was, what was the line you were? Line 137 okay. is, seems to be a, yes. a deviation yes. from the iambic meter that's been established so firmly in the lines that precede it. So, stirred up by God thus boldly for his king, my lord of Hereford here, whom you call king, is a foul traitor to proud Hereford's king jumps out because it changes without a doubt particularly foul traitor yeah and the fact that the first two words lead you know sort of launch you is a foul right yeah we hardly ever encounter that in shakespeare we hardly ever encounter an initial pyrrhic foot there are lots of Mm -hmm. initial trochees but an initial pyrrhic foot is a huge red flag this is different yeah to me i was given this freedom by a director and a teacher early on who said Yes, there are patterns, there is meter. I would say if you need to break it, give me five weeks and five strongs and that's all I care about, Hmm. regardless of how they're placed. And I thought, 
okay, I don't know if I agree with that, but it gives me a great deal of freedom. And I think even the notion that you can have that freedom helps. Uh, like Mary, God forbid, right at the top, line 116. I think there are a couple of ways to approach that. It can be beat, beat, Mary, God forbid, beat, beat. Or it can be Mary, God forbid. Right. It could also, I wouldn't do this, but it could be Mary, God forbid. Right. Because that way you, you fill your quota. Right. It's, it's a short line is what we're referring to. And yep. It's not a shared line. It is not a shared right. line. And so what David's referring to is that you have a lot of extra space yep. that you can play with. And where you put that space is what he's talking about. This is, this is something you like or you don't like about my approach to doing Shakespeare. I don't think any of it is set in stone. I think you figure out what the goalposts are. Can you believe I'm using a sports metaphor? But you, you figure out what the goalposts are and you're free within them. The goalposts being the meter, the rhythm, the punctuation. And then after that, you talk. Not that it's not poetry, but you, you just talk. Right. Well, at some point, I think if you are sensitive and aware of the poetry as a person and you've worked on the poetry and you're you accept the poetry then the poetry takes care of itself close i i will not agree it takes care of itself but what i will i agree 90 percent with what you just said because it's like vocal exercises vocal technique you learn it all you learn it all you beat it into yourself and then you forget about it because if you're spending the night worrying about sound production, then you're not doing the play. But you have to have learned, really learned it. I, mean, I find, and this is not to pat myself on the back, it's a necessity for me. I find it shocking when I do plays, and it's usually me and one of the students who are warming up before a show. Right. I don't know how people go on stage without it, but that was one of the things that was beaten, literally beaten into me by voice teachers at, at school in Toronto. This is a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. I'd love to hear about actors' preparation and what they specifically do on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis, not only when they're in the show, but in the times between when they're preparing a show or going out on auditions. Gilgood says, learn, said, learn something every day. I try to memorize something every day. I'm now 55. I don't anticipate losing my mind or my ability to memorize for a couple of years anyway. But if you spend a lot of the time in the gym lifting weights, if you stop, you go back not to square one, but you go back a couple of squares. These are muscles. So I try to memorize at least a couple of lines a day. I do a vocal warm-up every day. One of the big things I learned from these miraculous teachers I had is integrating a physical and vocal warm-up, and that's one of the things that I do more specifically when I'm doing a show. And that is, as opposed to do the physical warm-up, then do the vocal warm-up, they're all part of the same thing. I call it continual motion. So you are you are continually moving and stretching while doing vocal exercises because it's lovely to be able to make this beautiful sound when you're lying on your back with your knees up. Well, how many times have you been cast in a play where you do the big speech lying on your back with your knees up? You aren't. It's not going to happen. (laughs) 
I had one other one other question that that we ask all of our guests. <laughs> yes. Are you a versist or a punctuationalist? Oh wow. I have never heard it put that way. So you've you've sort of stumped me because I I would have to say, and I know this is not fair because I'm not going to answer the question, I think I'm a 50-50. I think, they're, I think both are wildly important. I, that's one of the reasons that I believe in Neil Freeman's work and going to the folio. I know that a lot of the punctuation we can't prove was what he wrote. But I was taught that there's a certain amount of time for a comma, a certain amount for a semicolon, a certain amount for a colon, and a full stop for a period. Right. I suppose if I had to give you an answer, it would be verse. Hmm. Interesting. A lot of people talk about sculpture as being removing the stone that is not the statue. Right. Or poetry as removing all the words that shouldn't be there. Well, that's what Shakespeare does. These words, they're right. It's as simple as that. I don't want to sound like an idolater, but I sort of am. He was a great writer. I think the three of us are. This is what brings us together. Great writers or idolaters? Great writers. Well, you're a great writer, Gary. Here's the thing that will get me in the most trouble with people. I... Go for it. it's, It's very dangerous. I don't think there's anything underneath Shakespeare. I think it's all there. There's no subtext. There's no subtext. I think if he wants to say it, he has you say it. Absolutely. And if you bring too much active digging to the work, to the performance of the work, Mm -hmm. then the meter goes out the window. The rhythm goes out the window because you're so busy scratching your balls and acting that all of a sudden... The other character in the play, which is the, the waves of words, gets cut off at the knees. I know you can't cut a wave off at the knees, but you know what I mean. Right. You're mixing your metaphors. I am mixing my metaphors. I You're do no that. Shakespeare. I know. I know. I have never pretended to be. <laughs> I think but. I'm a not dreadful interpreter, but I know him. It's true. But you're a wonderful guest. Well, thank you. This was actually a lot more fun than I thought it was going to be. David McCann, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thanks, David. You're welcome. I would actually like to do this again. I enjoyed it so much. I think we will have you back. Cool. We look forward to having you back, David. Thank you. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast, we invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.